Welcome to the New Testament Review. Where every episode, we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I'm Laura Robinson. And we are both PhD candidates at Duke University. And this is our Easter episode. Happy Easter, everybody. Woo! Woo! I don't really know how to make this sound Eastery. Yeah, no Easter music we yeah, can start Christmas off Christmas was easy. We could sing some hymns, I guess. But we are yeah. a believer in holiday episodes. We, we are. Christmas episode, an April Fool's episode, which is no longer up. And <laughs> this is our Easter episode. Today we are discussing John Bergen's 1871 book, The Last 12 Verses of Mark. John Bergen was an Anglican clergy member. He was dean of and wrote a number of books. He is famous for being an advocate for the Mosaic authorship of the Torah and an advocate or apologist for biblical inerrancy. And no, this is not another late April Fool's joke. <laughs> we actually do want to talk about this book. Or rather, we want to talk about the longer ending of Mark and use this as a way into that. Bergen is, in a lot of ways, the last of a species. He was one of the last fairly mainstream intellectuals who defended the priority of the Byzantine text type, who rejected what we now regard as our best manuscripts of the New Testament as late, corrupted texts, and championed the majority text. These are now more or less fringe views, and we're not going to spend the episode going into explaining the history of textual criticism We'll have to do a Westcott and Horde episode on that. And we're not going to do all the scholarship on the longer ending of Mark. After Bergen, William Farmer wrote another book by the same title, defending the originality of the longer ending. Lunn has written a book. Uh, Kel Hoffer has a book we're going to mention later. We're not going to do all of that today. We keep our holiday episodes <laughs> pious and fluffy. And that's what today is going to be. This might be the oldest work we have discussed on this show. We are really going back in time for this one. When we talk about all the endings of Mark, what are we referring to? So today what we're talking about is the ending of Mark. How does the book of Mark end? There's more than one answer to this question based on what manuscript you're looking at. Uh, some manuscripts at Mark end at what we now call verse 8 when the women leave the tomb, and some of them end quite a bit later, and there's uh, actually a resurrection appearance of Jesus. Open up your Bibles, and virtually all of them will have different endings printed. You can see this for yourself. A couple years back, I'm sitting in an Easter service with my family, and my older brother, a Christian apologist, is sitting with me, and the then pastor of my parents' church gets up and reads Mark 16, 9 through 20, as the passage he's going to preach on that day. And my brother and I, who don't agree about a whole lot in this world, look at each other with the same baffled expression. Not a mention, not a single reference was made to the fact that this, by the agreement of virtually all contemporary scholarship, is not part of the original Gospel of Mark. Now, the question of whether or not you should preach on this is not the sort of thing that Laura and I have the tools to talk about. We may have our own opinions, but it's really not what we do in this show. Our goal today is sort of to get you familiar with the different endings of Mark, the different theories about where these endings came from, and why Mark ended where he ended or didn't. The shortest ending is the ending of Mark that ends at verse 8. Uh, this is the ending that is found in two very important codex, codices, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sidiaticus. And uh, this is how it ends. This is right after the angel has appeared to the women and told them to go to the disciples and tell them to meet Jesus in 
Galilee. So they went out and they fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. For they were afraid. End of the gospel. So there's a few things that are weird about this. Um, One is that in Greek, this sentence ends with the word gar. Uh, gar is a conjunction. It's like ending a sentence with the word and. It's, uh, it's extremely abrupt. It's a very strange way to end the story. And also, it seems to end with something that doesn't make a lot of narrative sense. That the women leave the tomb and they never tell anyone what happened. How does Mark know what happened? How does anyone know what happened? Uh, yeah. We, we gave a theory about this in our uh, Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza yeah. episode. A theory that goes back to Ross Kramer. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to repeat all that now. It's worth noting, as Joel Marcus pointed out his commentary on Mark, and other scholars have noted, um, that actually, while this looks very strange to end a book with Gar, there are other books that end this way. Uh, Mark isn't the only one. My favorite example, although it's not a direct analogy, is the end of Jonah. The book of Jonah concludes, (laughs) and also many animals. (laughs) The fact that this ending is so abrupt has led some scholars to think that we have lost part of Mark. That this is not how Mark is supposed to end, that there is a missing page, or that there is a longer ending that we just don't have anymore. And it's worth noting that John Bergen, who we're ostensibly talking about today, (laughs) would agree with Laura and these scholars. He thinks 16.8 is a obviously inadequate ending of Mark. And Griesbach, who first suggested that that was in fact where the initial text of Mark broke off, also thinks this. He thinks the rest of the gospel was lost. But we'll get there in a second. Let's go. There's a different ending that's a bit shorter than the longer one that you find in like the King James Version, but it's still longer and still a bit more satisfying. So here's the shorter ending. But they reported briefly to Peter and those who were with him all that they had been told. And after these things, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. So that's a bit more satisfying, you know. Uh, Jesus is involved. Uh, He gives the commission like we have in, in Matthew. The women actually tell somebody what happened at the tomb. They talk to Peter. So yeah, there's a bit more of a wrap up and there's a bit more of a there's a bit more of the resurrection story that we all know and love and hear at Easter that's not just the women run off and never do anything again because they're too scared. In most of the manuscripts where this what we're calling the shorter ending appears, it appears right after 168. And this is very strange because 168 says and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And then 169 begins but they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all they had been told. Now, Codex Bobiensis, lowercase k in Old Latin manuscript, fixes this problem and is missing the second half of 16.8. So we could actually talk about this as another short ending, so a third short ending, where um, terror and amazement seize them and they go report to Peter without any mention of the not reporting to anyone. So this text of Mark makes some sense in Codex Bobiensis, but is rather baffling almost everywhere else with telling no one and then telling a bunch of people. Apparently, with Bergen and Griesbach, some scribes thought 16.8 was an inadequate place to end it. In fact, even if you with Bergen think the longer ending is original, clearly whoever supplied the shorter ending only had 16.8 and decided this too was inadequate. 
Uh, then this brings us to the longer ending. This appears in most manuscripts. Now, after he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and told all those who had been with him while they were still mourning and weeping. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Later, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were sitting at the table, and he upbraided them for their lack of faith and stubbornness, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes in their hands, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. And they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that accompanied it. Virgin thinks that this is the authentic ending of Mark. As we've discussed, this appears in most manuscripts. I think we should take a second to draw attention to some of the surprising features of this, uh, which don't really get into the question of its authenticity or not. Some of you may be familiar with the phenomenon of snake handling. This is a primarily Appalachian American worship activity. Uh, The idea that you will take venomous snakes among the congregation and you will hold them during the worship service and that you are fulfilling this sign. This is the sign that is accompanying you. This is the verse that that comes from. Original snake handlers were inspired by this verse to go pick up snakes and realize this passage. Oftentimes, snake handling churches will also drink poison, which is also in this verse. We're going to talk about this some more later, but with the exception of the snake handling, poison drinking stuff, this probably sounds very familiar to readers of the other Gospels. We'll get there in a second. There is one further ending to the Gospel of Mark. I'm calling this the longest ending, but this is also called the Freerologion. And it's called the Freerologion because it's found in Codex Washingtonianus, a manuscript found by, by Professor Freer. And this is also quoted by Jerome. So this ending falls within the longer ending, uh, when Jesus rebukes them for their disbelief. And they excused themselves, saying, This age of lawlessness and unbelief is under Satan, who does not allow the truth and power of God to prevail over the unclean things of the spirits. The devil made me do it. Therefore, reveal thy righteousness now. So they spoke to Christ. And Christ replied to them, The term of years of Satan's power has been fulfilled, but other terrible things draw near. And for those who have sinned, I was delivered over to death, that they might return to the truth and sin no more, in order to inherit the spiritual and incorruptible glory of righteousness, which is in heaven. This is a fairly eccentric reading, only one manuscript and one church father. But what's interesting is to note the way that this responds to a major theme and problem in the Gospel of Mark that a lot of modern scholars have picked up on. Theodore Whedon wrote a very influential article on the cluelessness of the disciples. And here the Freerologion, a scribe, um, composes a narrative that responds to this problem. Why is it that the disciples don't get it? And the Freerologion, the response is, it's because of the devil. Um, They were under the domain of Satan, and now that Christ has triumphed, faithlessness is no longer excusable. 
Now people are to live into the incorruptible glory of righteousness, to pick up the very verbose language of this longest ending. So now that we've laid the endings out, we should probably get into Burton's argument about why he thinks the longer, not longest ending is authentic and was written by the author of Mark. It's worth pointing out that a lot of Burton's argument does rest on some very confessional assumptions. But a lot of Burton's argument is dependent on the idea that there's no way that the divine author of scripture would allow the gospel of Mark to lose its original ending and be corrupted with all this other stuff. Mark, as the church has always had it, that has to be the original Mark because that's the Mark that God has preserved. If you find this convincing, that's okay. It's just not the kind of work that we do. It's also not the kind of work that scholars after Burgeon really did again. The field changed so much with Westcott and Hort. Even later advocates of the authenticity of the, latter ending, of the longer ending of Mark aren't going to make the style of argument Laura just laid out. They're right. not going to say it must be real because God wouldn't allow the ending of Mark to be lost. These sort of like explicit confessional commitments to the preservation of a text that is theologically acceptable doesn't really have a place in the subsequent history of scholarship. Or the assumption of divine authorship. But this is not the only argument that Burgeon appeals to to defend the authenticity of the long ending of Mark. A, a huge part of his work is dedicated to the idea that the church fathers actually have access to the long ending of Mark starting very early on. Uh, he appeals to uh, Papias, Justin, Irenaeus, uh, the Acts of Paul, and many others, and finds allusions to the long ending of Mark in these works. And if they really do have access to the long ending of Mark, it is a fair argument that that means that the long ending of Mark has to at least be early, if not originally authentic. And I'm actually going to agree with Burgeon on this. I mean, it's true. It's really hard to argue that Irenaeus and the Acts of Paul doesn't have the long ending of Mark. It's really hard to argue that the Apostolic Constitutions doesn't have the long ending of Mark. And that already puts us in 170s. And that's pretty darn early. Now, Burgeon wants to go earlier, as does Lunn in his more recent book on the long ending of Mark. Um, Lunn tries to find echoes in First Clement, the Didache, and these have not at all been persuasive. Burgeon wants to find echoes in Papias and Justin. Uh, so let's talk about these real quick. Papias doesn't quote the long ending of Mark, but according to one later source, Papias's book had a story in which somebody drank poison. And this, Burgeon says, is a clear allusion to the long running of Mark. Now, that's not impossible, but it's certainly not the only interpretation of the data. It seems just as likely that drinking poison was the sort of miracle confirmation story one tells in the second century. And these are two different people referring to stories about people drinking poison and coming away unharmed. Um, so Papias is really difficult evidence to use for the long running of Mark. Justin, too, is problematic, because he doesn't quite quote the long running of Mark. What he does have are three of the same words in almost the same order. Specifically the phrase, they proclaimed the good news everywhere. He doesn't have it in the same order, but he has these same three words. One word for proclaim, one word for good news, one word for everywhere. Is that compelling evidence for a quotation? The word proclaim, the word gospel, are really common second century terms. It's hard to say for sure that this is wrong, but 
it's also, but it's also not a very good argument. Not noted by Bergen, but noted by some later scholars, is that Tatian's Diatessaron, a second century harmony of the Gospels, may have had the longer ending of Mark. We don't have any copies of Tatian's Gospel, but we do have a commentary written on it that is attributed to Ephraim, and the longer ending of Mark seems to have been in Ephraim's text of Tatian, writing in the 4th century. But that puts us contemporary with Irenaeus. So it's safe to say that by 170, there were some copies of Mark's gospel that had the longer ending. We can give Burgeon that. Another key part of Burgeon's argument is that he disputes the usefulness of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus for constructing the original gospel text. These are two very important manuscripts for for text criticism and for reconstructing originals. And Virgin just goes straight to the heart on this, that he does not think these are best sources for reconstructing the autographs. We need to do an episode all on its own on why scholars tend to trust uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, uh, particularly over in more Byzantine texts. But this is something that Virgin is deeply skeptical of the idea that Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are not just helpful but more helpful than other existing text types uh, for understanding the Gospels. And he makes one argument that I want to draw attention to that I think scholarship hasn't really reckoned with, and that is the fact that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, according to these two best manuscripts and against every other manuscript of the Gospels, is stabbed to death on the cross. This doesn't happen in any of the other Gospels. In John, he's stabbed after he dies. But this happens in what scholars otherwise believe to be the best two manuscripts of Matthew. And all scholars reject this. This isn't found in the critical text of NA28, UBS, SBL, or Tyndale House. In fact, Tyndale House doesn't even print this in its apparatus. Uh, Omission, I think, is problematic. For Bergen, this suggests a secondary recension. The text from which Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are derived is the product of a scribal redaction process. And we're not going to go into today why most people reject that. We'll have to save some of this for our Westcott and Horde episode. Otherwise, you can go to our New Testament Review YouTube channel and see an hour-long lecture I give on textual criticism. But it has to be said, against Bergen's case, that Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are our two oldest manuscripts of the Gospels, and it's missing from both. Kind of. Vaticanus leaves a column blank at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and it doesn't do this for other book endings. And scholars who champion the authenticity of the longer ending of Mark suggest this is Vaticanus showing its awareness of the longer ending. Scholars have responded to that by pointing out that there's not enough space for the full longer ending, that there's there's column breaks at the end of the Book of Tobit um, and elsewhere, uh, and scholars have re-responded by pointing out those other breaks are explainable on other grounds, and that maybe the scribe was just going to cram in his letters for the longer ending. The point is, the external evidence is a little more ambiguous than some people have suggested. There are times where we reject the conjoined testimony of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. There may be some reason to think Vaticanus might know the longer ending. Debatable. But we think, and we're going to argue, that the longer ending's inauthenticity or secondary character is much more easily established on other grounds other than simply counting manuscripts. 
It's worth pointing out that the longer ending of Mark is missing from a lot of manuscripts. It's not just Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, though of course this is where Bergen directs his fire in response to Westcott and Hort. Uh, it's also missing from uh, the old Latin codex, uh, Bobiensis. It's missing from the uh, Sinaitic Syriac. It's missing from a lot of Armenian and Georgian manuscripts. So these are what we call versional evidence. Th these are translations of the gospel. Clement of Alexandria and Origen, again, two of our earliest church fathers, uh, show no awareness of the longer ending of Mark, and that Eusebius and Jerome both explicitly say that the ending of Mark seems to be missing. So the evidence that the long ending of Mark was not in the original manuscripts, it might be a little bit more ambiguous than uh, some might suggest, and Bergen does make some decent points about this. Tay's criticism, when, which the art of trying to reconstruct the, the original text of the Gospels, I mean, or just the New Testament in general, when we do this, it's not a head count. We don't just take all of the manuscripts that exist in the, uh, of the New Testament, wh whichever reading is witnessed to the most times, uh, is the winner. So most manuscripts have the long ending of Mark. The reason why we think that it's not authentic is not because it's missing from most manuscripts. It's missing from manuscripts that we think have a stronger claim to being the original. So this is what we refer to as weighing, not counting. We are weighing the strongest manuscripts against weaker manuscripts. We're not just doing a head count to see what reading shows up the most times. And unfortunately, we don't have papyri. We don't have really early manuscripts that witness to the Gospel of Mark. We have very few early manuscripts for the endings of Mark. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are our two earliest manuscripts, and they're both missing the longer ending. Bergen has a theory about why these are left off. He thinks it was a lectionary note that said, stop reading here, or something to that effect, which was mistaken for a critical note. Scribes then left off after that point. There's not a lot of evidence that this sort of thing happens, uh, but this is his theory. Now, there's a number of very good reasons why scholars today reject the long ending of Mark that don't have to do with manuscripts. So let's talk about a few of those. Reason number one, non-Markan vocabulary. The long ending of Mark is full of vocabulary that is not found in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, but is found in the other resurrection accounts in the Gospels. Um, and as we're going to talk about in a second, this is probably a tell that the long ending is copying out of those. So let's, what are these? Uh, apisteo, disbelief. The verb to disbelieve looks like it's pulled straight out of the Gospel of Luke, telling the exact same story, but is not found anywhere else in Mark. Uh, blopto, to strike. Epicalutho, to follow upon, uh, a verb meaning to go. Um, really fundamental vocabulary words like going, the longer ending of Mark uses different terminology than the rest of the gospel. So the idea that the long ending of Mark is uh, drawing from other resurrection accounts, a great example of this is the brief reference to what sounds like the Emmaus Road. And after this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. This is virtually unintelligible by itself, unless you already know the story of the road to Emmaus, which is not in Mark's gospel. It's in Luke. This in another form thing is never explained. 
It's just another form, and there's no other mention of that. There's no realization scene. There's no disclosure scene. It's just in another form, and the dis- these two go off and tell all the disciples. You only understand what this passage is doing if you know the Gospel of Luke. It's this, this is this very brief one-off explanation that Jesus appeared in another form. Uh, there are two of them as they're walking. Uh, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It, it seems to be a quick pressy of what is in Luke. This was previously argued by scholar James Kelloffer. Kelloffer also argued that there's dependence on John and Matthew um, and the rest of the Gospel of Mark here. Um, I actually don't think that's right, but I haven't put that into print yet, so I'm not going to talk about that. We certainly do... Here, however, have evidence of extensive dependence on the Gospel of Luke. This brings us to another another consideration, which is scribal tendencies. Why would a scribe change the text this way? Uh, sometimes scribes make mistakes, but sometimes they also deliberately change things. Which reading explains the others? Right. It doesn't make a lot of sense. If you're a Christian scribe who's trying to make the story of Jesus intelligible, it's a very strange decision to purposefully drop the last 12 verses of Mark. It's also weird that so many people apparently just got up from Mark and stopped copying it at some point. What does make a lot more sense, though, is that you would add these last 12 verses. Scribes did create ending material for other texts all the time in the ancient world. This it wouldn't be that out of character uh, for an ancient scribe to compose an ending for Mark when there wasn't one that was that was terribly satisfying. In fact, scribes we know, even if Virgin is right, created other endings for the Gospel of Mark. So say Virgin is right, and the longer ending of Mark gets left off because of a lectionary note. Um, the shorter ending of Mark is created by somebody. And the freer logion is created by somebody. So we know scribes are in the business of creating endings. And also, harmonization, we know scribes like correcting gospels to or against other gospels. We have places where Luke is corrected to look more like John. Um, an entire story is put in in some manuscripts. Um, this sort of thing happens. How does Mark end? If it doesn't end with the long ending of Mark, then what does it end with? Or what did Mark originally want this text to end with? We don't know. We don't know. We don't. Um, but we can tell you that there are a few different ways that scholars have tried to answer this. Uh, one is the idea that the ending of Mark is gone. There was originally an ending to Mark that we just don't have anymore. Scrolls could get damaged, uh, particularly at the end. If this is what happened to a scroll of Mark, it must have happened really, really early. Because Matthew and Luke... Both are using Mark here, and both stop agreeing with each other right here. They go off in completely different directions, exactly where Mark breaks off. And and this looks like a bit of a coincidence. So most likely, if Mark originally had an ending, it dropped off before one or the other of them were using the gospel. Other people have argued that Mark ends exactly where Mark wants Mark to end, which is at verse 8. And people have found some sort of theological significance here. The gospel sort of ends ambiguously with this look back towards Galilee and the hope that the uh, that the disciples might be reinstated. This would also be a great callback to chapter 14, where Jesus says that after he is raised up, he will go ahead of them to Galilee, and that the gospel just sort of alludes to this without actually narrating it. I think it's worth pointing out that people who have found this sort of beauty and the ambiguity and a narrative ending, um, this is a relatively recent phenomenon, sort of a post-World War II even, since I would argue literary critics and literature itself has gotten more comfortable with ambiguity. Uh, This is the kind of thing that 
modern audiences like to see, an ending that's not always super tidy. Uh, so Mark that ends like Inception uh, has gotten a lot more popular. Um, but historically, this wasn't a terribly satisfying solution, and Church Fathers didn't think that Mark just ended there, and that was fine. Right. I mean, and that's what the manuscript evidence attests. Right. Clearly the scribes weren't okay with this ending. Doesn't mean Mark didn't end it there. But to Laura's point, this is a relatively new interpretation of the ending of Mark. It is worth noting, though, that it's not true that Mark doesn't know about the resurrection, and it's not true that Mark doesn't have a final reconciliation with the disciples. Jesus is prophesying throughout the Gospel of Mark that he will be raised and that the disciples will be reconciled. So Mark knows or believes something about what happens after 16.8, and that includes bringing the disciples back into the fold and it includes some meeting with Jesus in Galilee as Matthew, but not Luke, would supply. Luke, for the record, commands the disciples not to leave Jerusalem until Pentecost. And this creates issues that we're not going to go into today. <laughs> Yeah, that's um the, the, uh, harmonizing or not harmonizing resurrection accounts is uh, beyond the scope of what we can do here, but pious and fluffy. But what we want to draw attention to is the fact that we don't really know where Mark ended. We're pretty sure it's not the long ending of Mark. But whether or not Mark ended his gospel at eight, or if he was interrupted, or if the gospel is unfinished, or if there was an end that we just don't have anymore, it's hard to say. Absolutely. Well, happy Easter, Laura. Happy Easter, Ian. And we will be back with you soon for a mailbag episode. You can find more about us on Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, Review, or email us at NewTestamentReview at gmail.com. I've seen brighter stars than you. I...